Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mercy is the mark of a great man. Oh. Oh. Guess I'm just a good man. Oh. Well, I'm all right. You are not Captain Kirk. You do not belong in charge of the Enterprise and I shall do everything in my power against you. You know what the chain of command is? It's a chain I go get and beat you with till you understand who's in command here. Frequently appalled by the low regard you Earthmen have for life. Another episode of SFP now. Um, we've got a, a great interview lined up for you guys later on. It's um, quite a long one as well. It's with uh, Joe Pearson, the uh, director, um, writer, and um, I think he was also a producer on the new DVD release, DVD and Blu-ray release of War of the Worlds Goliath, which is a sequel to the original H.G. Wells War of the Worlds movie. It's an animated film and it is absolutely brilliant. Go out and buy it now. Um, joining me uh, to go over news, uh, first time in a long time, and it's probably going to be his last time for a little while while he's away, uh, you know, studying the bar, is uh, Ty Bedoni. Oh, How are you doing? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, don't jinx me. So I actually wasn't going to say anything about it, but yes, yes. Uh, thank you. It's great to be back. I've missed being on the show. Yeah. Um, the, the, your your powers are weak, old man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can't think of a of a of a of a, of a snappy comeback. <laughs> Yeah, I'll tell you what, we're we're actually, we've got this thing, we're selling it in in, um, Sci-Fi Pulse merch, you know, the new store that I set up recently, and it's it's like a Darth Vader helmet, and it's a voice changer, and it's about about $40, and it's a voice changer, it makes your voice change to Darth Vader, and I was thinking the other day it would be an absolute hoot just to do do an entire episode of the show with a Darth Vader voice changer active. Absolutely. <laughs> or maybe I could do one of my mediations in the in, in Darth Vader's voice. You know, that would help make decisions for people, I'll tell you. Well, I'll tell you what, would, would definitely help make decisions for people. It comes with its own lightsaber as well. So. Oh, there you go. So forceful negotiations, I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, ho- hostile, um, hostile negotiations. Uh, I'm sorry, hostile it, was it, were they hostile or forceful? Well, either way. Yeah, yeah they can't hurt. That's the point. Well, you know, <laughs> it, it won't hurt once once your head is separated from your shoulders. <laughs> well, I mean, then it might be a little too late. But before that, we're talking before that, you know. I mean, it helps negotiations when you still have your head, but you're in fear of losing your head. I mean, that, that's a good negotiation from the dark side perspective. 
Although, if you have no head and you can't say no, and it happens anyway, yeah, okay, either way, actually, I guess, I guess I see your point, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, if your head rolls off, it's going to be, it's going to be uh, contained in a jar making, making future yeah. armor, isn't it, you know? Ah, true, true, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And in the interim, you know, the answer is yes, so either way, it's pretty good. Uh-huh. Okay, well, you know, so like, um, I know you've got a few news items you want to talk about. Um, I know you recently went to see Captain America. i seen it before you. Oh, na, 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 yeah, na. Yeah. I know you did. Yeah, rubbing <laughs> it in. I know. I Good loved it. You, I, I loved it. And like I said to Patrick last week, um, I said if I, you know, I basically said to him, if I had the money to throw throw at it, I'd go see it again. But unfortunately, I don't. Because oh, yeah. it's, you know, yeah. it cost, great, cost great me about movie. I, oh, I loved it. I took the kids to see it. We loved it. Everything about it, just absolutely awesome from beginning to end. Uh, and, uh, and I mean, from a comic book perspective, The Winter Soldier was an amazing storyline. Great storyline. Um, and it was just, it was tremendously, you know, done. And I think, you know, even though they took creative license, of course, as the Marvel Universe from a cinematic, you know, universal perspective does, it was just, it was tremendous. And and Chris Evans, he, he is Steve Rogers. I mean, I think he does a great job as Captain America. He really has that boyish, innocent, you know, 1940s quality that, that you know, we all kind of love about Captain America. And, and I believe him, you know. When I see him, I really do think he's, you know, Steve Rogers. So I just love it. Well, you know, the thing is with Chris Evans, he was actually at a high point of the uh, Fantastic Four movies, as in he was the only one that I actually bought. Yeah. You know, into yeah. the I fact. Did, you know, I didn't really enjoy him in those movies. And, uh, I, I mean, I enjoyed the movies, don't get me wrong. And I think he was a good Johnny um, Storm. I almost said Johnny Blaze. <laughs> I think he was a good Johnny Storm. But um, he's a much better Steve Rogers. And I, when I look at him, you know, in the Captain America movies, I don't even remember that he was Johnny Storm. So, you know, I, 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 maybe that's uh, to him as an actor, you know, a nod. But I just, you know, I don't even think of him as, as, uh, as to be honest with you, as, as, as uh, one of the fans at the Human Torch. You know, well, I, it's almost like it was a different actor, to be quite honest with you. Well, he looks, in my book, in he, my book. He looks completely different as Captain America anyway. You know, even when he's Steve he Rogers, really does, he looks completely yeah. different. So, you know, and I think yeah. I think with the Johnny the Johnny Storm thing, I think it was more a case of the writing than the acting performances. Uh, um, yeah, maybe you're right. And plus, you know, Johnny Storm is, is just a much more, you know, flippant and uh, immature character than Steve Rogers ever would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I I really enjoyed it. What do you what do you reckon's gonna happen to uh, Agents of Shield now? Because you know you know major spoiler, but everyone's seen the film by the time this goes out. Uh, there's no more Shield left. You know, sort of like Shield is sort of like mm. kind of um, been well, been ushered away. No, I think I think you know this is gonna be a time of transition for Shield. You know, I think Shield is is now you know gonna become the new Shield. I mean, that kind of happened. That's not the first time it's happened. I mean, the Captain America movie is really an amalgam of several different story lines from the comic universe. And so there was a, you know, there was a, I don't know if, you, if, if yourself and the listeners will remember, and I can't remember the name exactly, but there was a, a, a very limited series, I think it was five or six issues, that Paul Neary illustrated um, in the 80s, and it was about, you know, uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. becoming corrupted and infiltrated from within, and it dispersed, and, and you know, S.H.I.E.L.D. 
um, you know, it was uh, was a better organization for it. So I think I think what this is a time for Shield to regroup and to reassess and you know get some new people in there and kind of clean up house. And then we're going to see we're going to see a new Shield is what we're going to see. In my opinion, you know, I think Shield doesn't go away. Shield just uh, you know it, it just gets polished and it gets reinvented. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think it'll still be attached to you, to the U.S. government, or do you think it's going to be song like a more more of your clandestine organization that that song that gets going through private funding or something? Well, yeah, you know, I think the answer is a little bit of both. I think Shield is inherently a uh, a, a, a a United States organization in that you know it, its main mission, yes. It, Global espionage, but you know it's 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 bread and butter. It's funded by the U.S. government, and so it, it first and foremost, I think, would protect the, the U.S. government. But I mean, I don't understand that Shield was uh, you know more United Nations than it was you know Homeland Security. I think you know first and foremost, it's Homeland Security, um, and then where its goals coincide and are the same with its allies, they're going to you know work internationally, but I think, have no doubt about it, first and foremost, S.H.I.E.L.D. is an American, uh, at least from the comic book perspective mm-hmm. and from what everything I've seen, it's an, uh, you know, it's apple pie, baby. Yeah, well, it's, just that, it's just that I was kind of thinking, you know, Tony Stark could fund it. Tony Stark could bankroll it. And um, I'm thinking the, in, right. in some of the comic books, Tony Stark's actually uh, in charge of Yeah, Shield. he was the director. Yeah, he became yeah. the director for a little while. So As did Steve Rogers, as I recall, although not uh, for as long as... as uh, or, or maybe he was... Well, anyway, I, I, yes, Tony Stark took over S.H.I.E.L.D. as the director for... For some time, but now it's Maria Hill, uh, who is the uh, Kobe Smolder's character. Yeah, yeah. You know. uh, funny in the movie, she's uh, she's in Shield uh, Human Resources, getting a job. Yeah, she she definitely smolders that 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 woman. I tell you. Oh yeah, she's hot. Yeah, she she she's <laughs> smolder. She's smoldering. That that that's a superpower, I bet. <laughs> No pun intended. Absolutely, I agree. <laughs> I, I just, I just love her name, Kobe Smol- Smolders. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's know. a funny name. I like Kobe, but Smolders. Oh. <laughs> mm. Yes, you know, it's like it's, it's quite a hot name. I like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, Inherently, yes. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, so like, um, like yourself, I loved Agent. I, I loved Captain America. Agents of Shield yeah, is actually yeah. slowly warming up. It's getting, it's getting gradually better. Um, although yeah, I've not, yeah. I've not been too impressed with the first half of the season. It's now beginning yeah, to yeah, get. It's now beginning to get get there for me, but I still prefer. I'm really Arrow. looking forward. I'm looking forward to uh, Cersei uh, making her guest appearance. Well. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, we had um, we we had the introduction of Lorongai last week here in the UK. Of what? Of of Lorongai, you know the um the. Oh, Lorelai, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We had we had the introduction of her last week in 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 the UK. That's where we're up to. We're a couple of weeks behind you guys. Um, right. on, gotcha. on I don't want to mess it up for you then. <laughs> so, well, you know, I, I kind of, I kind of, I'm kind of aware what's what's coming up because, um, you know, obviously Patrick reviews it and um, right. I, I, right. I pick up news bits about it here and there. But I just basically try to ignore and um, and, and watch it on on a week by week basis and um, try to be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I basically, I basically have selective memory and trying, trying, trying to forget 
no right. spoiler information so that I'm surprised when it comes round. Doesn't always work, but for most part it does. Um, but I, I still prefer Arrow over over Shield at the moment. Oh my gosh! I yeah, my son. I wasn't watching Arrow, and my my sons watch it, and uh, and and uh, they said, Dad, you got to watch Arrow with me. And what hooked me was I'm a huge. Uh, uh, I love the show Spartacus, and and one of the stars of Spartacus, Crixus. Manu Bennett is Deathstroke on on Arrow. Dude, they're all and, in there. Uh, they're all in there. Yeah. Um. They, you know, the the they, they they had you know last week they had Cynthia Adai Robinson from Spartacus. You know, she played uh Crixus's yeah. girlfriend. She she was playing yeah, the yeah, um, yeah. she was playing the girl yeah. the girl that heads up the woman that heads up the Suicide Squad. Yeah, um, that was the, fun. The overall that boss. Fun. Was... And also, it's a good series. I'm really enjoying it. And also a couple of weeks ago, the uh, the actress can't remember her name off the top of my head, but the actress who played Myra Spartacus's girlfriend um, on the series was was in it as a um, as as Rachel Gould's daughter. Ooh, really, Batman's yeah. girlfriend? I mm. like it. Yeah, well, she 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 was a she was a badun. Talia. Yeah, yeah. Ta- Talia Al Ghul. She was a badun in this. Um, Mother to uh, to. Uh... The, the latest and most deceased Robin. Damien. The age, yes. Yeah, it, it's quite appropriate, I would have called him Damien, isn't it? <laughs> what was that? It's quite quite appropriate that they called him Damien. They were obviously watching I The Omen. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear me. Um, well, you know, so like, um, you've, you've got you've got another story you want to talk about um, that, that you posted today. Um and, yeah, um, I, I uh, do you want me to the comic review and another story? Yeah, do you want me to cue in this, on this one? Well, go on, go on, go on. I'm not going to hum any more of it for you because I'm completely fucking <laughs> it up. <laughs> right, right. So for those for those listeners who, who didn't catch the tune, I think that was uh, Star Trek. No, no, it's Star Wars. Star Wars. I'm sorry. What was my uh, what was my other story then? I thought I did three today. Oh shit! It was Star Trek. I'm I'm sorry. I'm just going senile. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yes. So um uh and 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 this is simply uh this simply relates to the science fiction reference and and really nothing else. Um uh you know uh, while while I'm a uh, while I'm an American and and you know you know uh, as patriotic as any other you know American may or may not be. Um, what's really interesting about this story is the fact that there is a real life Captain James Kirk. Uh, who 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 happens to so he happens to be you know an an American um, naval commander uh, I think he's a captain absolutely obviously um, but so it's just interesting as far as I know he's the only at least in recent history and or serving right now the only real life Captain James T Kirk actually he's Captain James A Kirk he's not Captain James T Kirk but he's Captain Kirk so I can only imagine the fun ribbing. That his uh, crew must give him. Dude, but you know, he's, he's Captain A Kirk. Is that is that kind of, is that kind of like uh, Captain James T Kirk's, uh, you know, gay, gay lover or something? <laughs> It could very well be. I, I didn't delve deep enough into the backstory you know, to find out. Uh, and, you know, now the U.S. Uh, military has a don't ask, don't tell policy. So we'll never know, I suppose. But, mm-hmm. uh, but he takes command of a, of a brand new stealth destroyer 
which is uh, uh, the USS Sumwalt. So but there is a real life Captain Kirk on the high seas, and so I thought that that was uh, fun and interesting. So I, you know, I did a little piece on that. So it's case of now we see him, soon we won't. <laughs> well, <laughs> now, now we see him, soon we won't. <laughs> It's kind of cute. Uh, it's kind of a cute story, I guess. You know. Uh, I, I I thought it was a cute story. I really didn't think it was. You know, this isn't uh, uh, you know me me saying, oh look how great the you know uh, again uh, this was simply nothing more than a real life Captain Kirk out there. Nothing more. You know. I can, and again, I just how fun. Like if I was him, like because you know Captain's prerogative, I would so make it so that like whatever the inter-ship communications went on, it would be that, you know, when Captain Kirk hits the communication button on the wall, and go, man, you know what I'm talking about? I would so, like, make a whole bunch of the, of the, I would just do it, you know? Who's going to say no? It's Captain Kirk, for Christ's sake, you know? <laughs> no one's going to argue with him. You can do stuff like that. I would do it. If I was Captain Kirk, I would so do that kind of stuff, I and mean, I'd have a blast doing it. <laughs> yeah, that 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 that'd be fun. Um, I've got a um, I've got a bit of a um, bit bit of news. Do you like Twenty Four? Um, you know, I used to watch Twenty Four. I have not seen it probably in you know forty eight months. <laughs> well, it's not <laughs> like been it's not been on in two three years, dude. You know? Oh, is, is that right? There the, you go. That's why <laughs> they're making they're making that new series Twenty Four that can give another day, which is going to be premiering May. Uh, yeah. Now, yeah, well, this this is this is where it gets really cool. It comes out in the states on May fifth, right? So it's going to be a twelve-week uh, series, and it starts on May fifth. And when it comes out, the uh, two-hour premiere episodes are going to simulcast both in the states and the UK. So basically, when they go, when they go live in the states, they're going to be going live here in the UK at one a.m. in the morning. Um, so it'll be May, it'll be May fifth for you guys. It'll be like May sixth for us. So, you know, Jack Bauer he's managed to right, uh, right. he's managed to master time traveling as well now. <laughs> right, absolutely. <laughs> I really enjoyed it when the, when they simulcast Doctor Who. You know, in in in, in both uh, in, in both time zones and over there and over mm. here as well. So that's a good idea. I mm. think I think it's smart. And they did Game of Thrones um, in it this week as well. So. Very nice. Yeah, so that that was actually. Do you know I have yet to see Game of Thrones? Everyone is like totally giving me a ribbing for having not having seen Game of Thrones, but I've yet to see that show. Dude, you, you you've got you've got so much catching up to do. It's unbelievable. I know. It's, a, it's a massive know, series. Apparently. It's massive. It's on like uh, <laughs> loads of drama, loads of cast changes. Some somebody gets killed every season. Um, actually, someone pretty <laughs> much gets like killed. <laughs> someone pretty much gets killed every episode. Um, I, I actually think it's better than Walking Dead, but that's because I don't like zombie things. You know, I, oh, I, just, I, I hate zombies. anything. I hate anything to do with zombies. Oh, what? I love me some zombies. I'm the biggest zombie head, deadhead, <laughs> so to speak. I love Walking Dead. Oh my gosh, it's amazing show. You know, there's some there's some parts of the UK where it can be sectioned for admitting that. <laughs> Really? Well, thankfully, 
I ain't there. <laughs> I'm just playing with you. Uh, another cool bit of news that's uh, just been confirmed. We actually talked about this briefly on the last episode where Patrick brought it up that um, it was rumoured that Peter Mayhew was going to be reprising the role of Chewbacca in Star Wars Episode I've been, 7. I've been hearing that. I mean, I know folks yeah, have been well, uh, it's trying now, to make it happen. It's now been confirmed. Good. What, the rumour or that it's going to happen? It's going to happen. He, he's going to be playing it's Chewbacca in the new movies. See, but, you know, I, so then the question then would become, so in what capacity? Because, you know, as I understand it, the books uh, serve as, uh, are like uh, somewhat official. And as I recall, Chewbacca died in, uh, in, in, in you know, one of the novels. He was, he was killed. So it, it, it's interesting. It'll be interesting. Is it going to be a flashback? Is it, what's it going to be? How, are there any are there any rumors with respect to you know how in essence uh, Chewbacca is going to be coming back? No, there's not not nothing like that. Um, I'm pretty sure Patrick might find something over the next coming weeks. You know, knowing uh, what a big, huge Star Wars fan he is, because he's I'm, read as it. am I. I'm gonna have you know? to uh, I'm gonna have to look that up myself to see if I can find anything but about it. It has been confirmed. It has been confirmed. It was um I I found it at Hollywood Reporter. They've pretty much confirmed that Peter Mayhew is back for the uh, new film. Oh, and, no way! I did not see that. That's very cool. And I think that it's... Very, 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 very cool. And I think given that they're bringing Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill back, it's only fair. Well, yeah, I, I, I would agree. But, you know, what about uh, Kenny Baker? Well, you know, it's so like... Um, I'm, I'm not sure if Kenny Baker will be back or not. I mean... To be honest, um, he he kind of became redundant. He kind of became redundant yeah. in the nineties. Yeah, but just out of respect, you know. Mm. Yeah, I mean, literally, in my mind, it's literally just out of respect. It's, uh, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, anybody could play. Look, any seven foot tall guy can be Chewbacca, you know. So why they give it to Peter Mayhew? Well, they gave it to him out of respect. Mm-hmm. So what about poor Kenny Baker? Come on, you can make him up. I mean, in uh, Attack of the Clones, we saw we saw uh, Anthony Daniels in you know one of the one of the point when Obi Wan is, is in a bar and they're looking for the assassin with uh, with Anakin and and the guy says, hey, do you want to suck on some death sticks? And he's like, you want to go home and rethink your life? And he's like, I want to go home and rethink my life. And Anthony Daniels was in there as a, you know as a patron, so. I mean, the point is, I mean, we've, we've got to put Kenny Baker in there somewhere. It's just horrible. You're going to have everybody except Kenny Baker in there? That's not nice. Yeah, well, you know, we'll just I'm have, up petition. we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, we don't we we don't know we don't know all the cast members yet. I mean, that that well, we know really is that we're going to start shooting it in May. I, um, I wrote about that as well in, in my last. Uh, apparently, uh, last week one of my articles was that uh, May thirteenth is it? They start shooting the next. They start shooting the next. Uh, you know, episode seven in uh, in Africa. In Tunisia, but in Tunisia, and in any regard, they're going to start shooting. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and the rumor that I found was that uh, they will, in essence, pro- that potentially May Fourth is become like Star Wars Day. That is, in essence, when they may um, be announcing. You know, the, the the thought is that maybe they're going to announce on May Fourth, Star Wars Day, when in fact, uh, you know. 
who all the, the, the primary cast is and, and what have you. Yeah. And I mean, it makes a kind of sense to me, so I'm hopeful that that'll be the case. So we may know all of the issues, we may know soon enough. Okay, well here's another, um, here's, a, here's a nice little segue considering you've gone on to May 4th, and uh, May the 4th be with you by the way. Yes, yes, um, and you as well. But, you know, basically, um, we know that recently uh, we had Carrie Fisher and James Earl Jones appear in episodes of The Big Bang Theory. Well, apparently yeah. The Big Bang Theory oh, are yeah. going to be doing a very, yeah. very special Star Wars episode, um, yeah, which I is going to be based on, it's going to be set on Dagobah, and Lucasfilm are back in it. They've actually built a reconstructed set of the Dagobah system oh, for this I episode. Love that. Love it, I love it, I love it. That is awesome. And, you know, it's like, um, I'm not sure what the storyline is, but it's basically Big Bang Theory's way of celebrating May 4th. And I think it's going to be, yeah. I think it's going to premiere on May 1st. So it'll be, be on a couple of days That's before. very freaking cool. I cannot wait. I'll try and, and beat Patrick to the uh, review punch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I love Big Bang Theory. It's kind of like my favourite oh, sitcom. Oh my God, what a show. Me too. I would say that. That is one of my favorite shows as well. Uh, after Walking Dead. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so like I, I just love I, go, I love, love those characters. Uh, I just love Sheldon, you know. So as like, do I. Um, yeah, as do I. As do I. Amazing, amazing. Great writing. Great. I love everything about it. Yeah, great show. Great show. Mm-hmm. Can't get enough of it. Okay. Well, um, do you do you have anything else you wanna song I talk about? Um, you know, uh, just uh, you know, a, a quick kind of shout out, so to speak. I uh, I've been doing some uh, some um, reviews for uh, you know Boom uh, Studios for the, the comic publisher, mm-hmm. and they have uh, an imprint which is uh, called uh, Arkea. And um, when I was in Texas, I interviewed, and I think two or three weeks ago, I did a I did a, uh, a review of um, Conspiracy of the Planet of the Apes as, as written by Andrew E.C. Gaska. And so, you know, Boom asked me if I wanted to, uh, you know, interview uh, the author and the, 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 the writer, uh, uh, Andrew Gaska. And so, you know, they sent me uh, a, a really thick, heavy, you know, box, and inside were four graphic novels. I, I love reviewing for sci-fi both because you get some great free stuff sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I got these great four graphic novels, and I'm on my third one, the first having been um, Conspiracy of the Planet of the Apes, which is, in essence, the story of, uh, you know, the, the, of the four astronauts who went up with Charlton Heston's you know, character, um, one of those characters was uh, Landon. Remember the guy who got, who they cut? Remember when, when, yeah. when Charlton Heston's character sees him, he goes, oh, you cut him, you animals. Well, so they, they take you through Planet of the Apes from Landon's perspective. Oh, an amazing read. I love every minute of it. Beautiful artwork. It was novel slash illustrated work called Conspiracy of the Apes. I finished that. I, I did a great review. I well, I really enjoyed it. Mm. And then and then I picked up and and you know uh, one of my next articles is going to be a review of uh, Space 1999 aftershock and awe. So what he did was he took. Um, the Space 1999 story, and there's an aspect of it that we never that we never saw that uh, was a portion of the original pilot from Space 1999 that was uh, never shot. So he he he, he fleshed it out. Cool. It's really fun, and it also has to deal with um, what what were the ramifications of Earth to Earth of the Moon breaking away. 
total catastrophic, you know, uh, things happen to Earth. So it's a really great read. It's called, you know, Space 1999, Aftershock and Awe. And again, it's by, you know, Boom Studios imprint, Archea. And it's by uh, Andrew C. Uh, Andrew E. C. Gaska. And it's mm-hmm. a tremendous read. And it's just a graphic novel. Now, I'm on my third graphic novel of his and, uh, you know, Archea's. And it's called Critical Millennium, uh, Dark Frontier. And I am so enjoying these graphic novels. So, you know, I would love, to, I'm plugging it. Just because it's really, really that good. They didn't give me any money. But, I, <laughs> but they're really, really good. I'm really enjoying them. So if anybody wants some original Planet of the Apes uh, or original, you know, Space 1999 story, you got to get uh, the graphic novels, which are Conspiracy of Planet of the Apes and, um, you know, a Space 1999 Aftershock and Awe. Absolutely tremendous. I can't recommend them more. Cool. Well, I'm going to I'm gonna have to order those myself because um, oh I, my I'm a... So I'm a big Planet of the Apes fan um, to the point that, to yeah. the point where I I actually got the entire run of Boom Studios Planet of the Apes comics by Daryl Gregory, and I also oh, got wow. the I also got the entire run of the um, Planet of the Apes comics that um, I think it was a uh, oh I can't remember the 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 author's name off the top of my head um, is Gabriel Hardman and um, and 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 his partner. Um, who who wrote 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 the wrote the other Planet of the Apes series for Boom, which was kind of like set you know about twenty years before um, Charlton Eston landing on on the Planet right. of the Apes, and uh, the Gabriel Hardman was set you know the sorry the um, Daryl Gregory ones were set after um, yeah. Charlton Heston, um, as in a um, hundred years a hundred or so years after Charlton Heston and landed. Um, I'm not sure if it was after, oh, or if, wow. I'm not sure if it was after actually, or if it was before, because it starts his his first issue starts with a lawgiver being killed, sort of thing, and it tell tells of a of a society of apes and humans that are living so sort of like fairly peacefully together, and uh, the, the the murder of the lawgiver kind of like uh, destroys that peace, and um, right. it's an epic sweeping saga. It's um, I think it's about twenty odd issues, sort of thing. I've got every single one of them, and uh, it's it's a comic yeah. book series that Boom started about two years ago, and uh-huh. I think it's I think it's recently ended. Um, both of them have, but you know. Yeah, yeah, I, I seem to remember some Planet of the Apes comic from Dark Horse or something like that. No, no, it was Boom. It wasn't Dark Horse. It, oh, it was, it was Boom. Okay. It was Boom yeah, right, Studios. Right, right. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, right. It's not Gaska's work, but I did see those. I did see those. Yeah, yeah. they, they, they um, you know. So I, 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 I've read every single one of them, and I've got every single one of them. So it'd be nice to add this. Uh, is it Conquest of Planet of the Apes? You say. Con- a conspiracy of the planet of the apes. Conspiracy of the planet of the apes. I'm gonna to have to pick yeah, that up. It's so a tr- tremendous read, tremendous read. Really, really good stuff. And again, it, it you know uh, uh, another backstory to the original film. So it's really fun because you're seeing you're 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 getting to. Um, it's almost like you're watching Planet of the Apes all over again. And it's a novel. It's an illustrated novel. So it has maybe thirty you know illustrations in it. But the rest, it's, it's as if you're reading a novel. I simply loved it. I thought it was absolutely amazing. Okay, well, Tiger, uh, thanks for joining us, and um, we'll get you back on here in June when you get back from. Um, from... Uh, it'll be July, my friend, and yes, I cannot wait. Okay. <laughs> so we'll see you in July. Whenever someone asks me if I believe in heaven and hell, I tell them I don't know about heaven, but on hell, I'm an expert.
Today, at 11 a.m. in Sarajevo, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated. The Balkans are about to go hell. Countries mobilizing against each other. Unless we're united, mankind is done for. Martians. It's been 15 years since the first invasion. Are we ready, sir? I won't allow myself to believe anything else. Europe's about to explode and take England with it. We either make our move when it does, or we'll never be free. The fools in Europe would rather be there to fight each other than the Martians. Okay, well, I'd like to welcome to the uh, show, this week's show, Joe Pearson, the uh, director and writer of the uh, fantastic new movie, which is coming out, uh, which which is, uh, in actual fact, it'll be out by the time we do this, um, War of the Worlds Goliath, which is kind of like a continuation of the uh, classic H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds story. Um with a little bit more bang. Um, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So, Joe, how are you doing? It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate your interest in our little epic. Oh, well, little epic. It's so like it's kind of like to me. It's kind of like a huge epic. Um, having finally seen the film on Saturday, and I really enjoyed it. Um, but it's been kind of a, an epic production schedule for you guys as well, because um, the first time I heard about it was summer of 2009. Yeah, it's been a, uh, the war we waged in making the war movie is probably about as long as World War Two. You know, when you get down to it, it's mm-hmm. kind of ironic, isn't it? You know, it's an internal triangle, good, cheap or fast. And uh, we did it pretty good and pretty cheap. But fast went out the window, you know. You, you can't have all three. So we opted for good and a moderate budget, uh, but we didn't do it fast, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what prompted the decision for you to, um, you know, actually write a continuation of, um, of, of the classic War of the World story? I mean, what, what, for, what, what about that story do you think stood out more uh, for you? you know, than, than anything else that you could have continued? Well, it's a twofold decision. Uh, back in the early 60s, when I was nine years old, I was recuperating over the summer from a second-degree burn, uh, sunburn. And I spent the summer at my grandmother's home out here in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, I was nine years old, but a voracious reader even at that point. And I'm sure, like most of your readership, uh, you know, science fiction and fantasy it was always my first love as far as books go once I discovered them. And my first real SF read as a child was H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. And you can well imagine the impact on young jo- Joseph's brain of, of his rigorous his War of the Worlds by Wells is the first pu- real modern science fiction novel. Uh, it may be one of the first real modern novels of, of any kind. You know, it's years beyond its Victorian roots and his approach. So I read that book over the summer, and it, it pretty much blew all the circuits in my mind and hooked me into you know, science fiction as a genre of literature that I would you know, remain loyal to for most of my life. And you know, as I grew older and got into animation, I, you know, three, almost four decades later, I had my own studio. We had just finished a really nice TV series called Captain Simeon and the Space Monkeys. I don't know if that got screened in England or not. Um, it did, yeah. Yeah, it was a good. It was actually quite a, a, a good science fiction show. As the writer said, he put in all the uh, sci-fi jokes and quips, and I put in all the explosions. And uh, 
we had some downtime with my crew and I was looking for projects to develop that we could go out and pitch. And I wanted projects with marquee value and projects that were in the public domain. And uh, War of the Worlds came pretty much instantly to mind as you know something I had loved as a child, read, reread several times as an adult, loved the various adaptations that had been made, the Orson Welles broadcast, the George Powell movie from the you know mid-50s, which is a brilliant piece of filmmaking and, and sci-fi. So I locked in on that, and uh, about three weeks later, I had written uh, the character biographies and the story concept and the treatment, and I'd had a, a really good design pack put together by my ace team of artists at the time. I mean, I, I think what resonated with me was really the what if. H.G. Uh, Wells ends his novel. It's very open-ended. I mean, the Martians have died, and, but mankind's world lies in ruins. Our civilization's been pretty crushed. And you know they'll come back, you know, you know that the big bloated bastards will return and they'll have some kind of immunity when they do, so what would you do? And logically, it seems to me you would get up off your, on your feet, dust yourself off, you'd rebuild your cities, you'd arm up using whatever technology of the Martians you could retro-engineer and you'd wait for them to come back. So that's kind of how that all, that's the genesis of how all of that began. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one one of the things um, I I really loved about the um, about the film was you know the fact that you know not only did you so like decided to set it um, during the dawn of the uh, first world war, but you know we actually had uh, actual characters from real life history such as Teddy Roosevelt and uh, you know the Red Baron and, um, and 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 the like and you know I just loved the way you had your own characters interacting with those people and. Um, and, but I, I love that kind of thing anyway. So I'm a fan of the young Indiana Jones Chronicles for that sort yeah. of reason because you had Indiana Jones mixing with uh, the likes of Albert Schweitzer and stuff like that. Um, so I, I love that idea. What 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 prompted you to um, you know sort of like take, you know, take on the sort of like steampunk and uh, revised history element to, to your story? Well, I've always loved steampunk as a genre. I think my first real exposure to that came with um, what the seminal Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea movie, you know. Mm -hmm. And there was a Czechoslovakian production that uh, the mysterious world or the fantastic world of Jules Verne. It, it played on American TV in the '60s, which had this sort of line art Daria Graf background style with all kinds of dirigibles and battleships and submarines. It was really quaint and, and really fantastic. And, you know, all of that was in the background. I, I loved Miyazaki's uh, Laputa, Castle in the Sky feature, which I thought was a really evocative uh, steampunk-like film with its zeppelins and battle trains and the like. So... I've loved the milieu, and I was a history major for four years before I changed my major over to art at university. So I've always had a lifelong love of history as a subject matter. And when I cast about for a date and place to set a sequel to the War of the Worlds novel, uh, 1914 just seemed like a logical year. That was really one of those years in, in world civilization where everything changed. You could almost say that was where the modern era began. It was certainly... The World War One, which was one of the most horrific cluster fracks of all time, right? It, mm -hmm. it ended mankind's innocence, you know? Yes. The idea of war as a noble, almost edifying undertaking was really crushed by the pure brutality and horror and slaughter of trench warfare. And uh, I thought that would be a really dramatic point in history to lock our story onto, so, because then you have all of the dynamics of 
of a, of a universal defense force Ares in our film, you know, the, it's a teams of members from all over the world being called together to fight a common enemy. At the same time, those fools in Europe are about to go to war, as, as uh, Teddy Roosevelt so succinctly puts it. Mm-hmm. or Kushnerov puts it. So it, it seemed like it really a story would kind of write itself if you said it in that period. And then as far as Teddy Roosevelt and Tesla and Richthofen goes, they were key historical figures at that point. Uh, Roosevelt in particular resonated for me because I'm you know, an American and a, and a student of history. And I, I thought in many ways he exemplifies the best and, and sometimes worst of the American persona. You know, He's one of our truly great presidents. He did many great things. He was a, a radical politician in many ways, the way he took down the big corporate interests. You know, he was a dynamic personality, you know, he, and a warrior, and he just seemed like an ideal character to center on. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Wind and the Lion by John Milius. Um, it's one of my favorite films of all time, and, and that had a, a really amazing uh, rendition of Teddy Roosevelt, which was a huge influence on me in this film. And I'll have to check that out because uh, Roosevelt, he was the, um, he was the only uh, US president to actually serve more than two terms, right? No, that was Franklin Roosevelt. Oh, that, his, that was Franklin cousin. Roosevelt, his yeah. cousin, no, right? Teddy served uh, close to two terms, and, and then he ran again and was defeated. He actually split the Republican Party, Republican Party down the middle. He created his own party called the Bull Moose Party, which is classic Roosevelt, right? Mm-hmm. But he, so he effectively handed the election over to Woodrow Wilson and the Democrats, which was a good thing in the end. But but yeah, he's he's one of those characters. If you uh, watch The Wind and the Lion or the, John Milius did a, a really lovely uh, movie for TNT about the Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders, and, and you actually see this guy charge, leading a charge up a hill at San Juan Hill into the teeth of German machine gun fire, you know? It's, it's a pretty... He's a pretty much uh, a real bigger-than-life character, so who better to put into a, a movie like this? Mm. And you even had him taking taking it to the alien threat right at the end of the movie as well, which was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, well, like I said, he was a hands-on guy. He was a warrior, you know. He knew he knew weapons, and he wasn't afraid to use them. You know, he had a lot of courage underneath his his um, you know bravado. He was a genuinely uh, brave man. How did you go about casting it? Because uh, one 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 of the big big draws about War of the Worlds, Goliath, me other than the steampunk setting, the historical characters and and everything else was a cast. I mean, you you had Adrian Paul and uh, Peter Wingfield and Elizabeth Grace and Jim Burns from 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 the Highlander series. And what was kind of unusual for me is um, you had Peter Wingfield playing the heroic character and Adrian Paul playing his underling, which was kind of like a reversal on what that was in, in Highlander. So yeah, that's a hoot, isn't it? It's uh, fun, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that I really that was all David Abramowitz. I had met David a few years earlier uh, when I was co-producing uh, the Highlander anime movie, Highlander: The Search for Vengeance, which I also loved. I thought that was a great movie. Thank you. You know, I, I do too. I think outside of the original film, I think it's easily the best of the Highlander feature films. You know, it was because for all of us, David, Kevin Eastman and I and, and the producers at Amaji, we wanted to, and the Highlander owners and producers, we really wanted to make something that kind of remained true to the original film, but wasn't slavishly copying it or 
or um, debasing it like some of the other films did. And uh, we, you know, tried to do our best working with a, a very strong-willed Japanese director, Kawajiri, to to make something that worked. And I and I think it did. I, I think it it's a it's a good addition to the Highlander canon, certainly. Mm -hmm. So I, that's where I met David and. While we were brainstorming the plot for Highlander's Search for Vengeance, uh, I found him to be that rare writer who's just extremely collaborative. I mean, obviously he has a strong ego, every writer and creator does, but he wasn't afraid to acknowledge a good idea and to incorporate it into the story if it worked. And, uh, for example, all of the flashbacks in that Highlander movie uh, were created by me. I, I brainstormed all of those, and, and David liked them, you know, and incorporated them into his brilliant script. So. When we got the funds to make War of the World's Goliath, I, I knew David was instantly my first choice as a writer that could take my, my short 10-page treatment and my character bios and, and craft it into uh, what I thought to be a very compelling storyline. And, and then he's David's such a great guy, he didn't stop with that. He said, look, if you guys would like, I can bring in you know the crew of the Highlander series, because he David was a showrunner on the series, and we can get them to do your voices if you think they would fit. And Leon and I looked at each other and for about th 10 seconds and said, yeah, man, let's do it. You know, that's a great idea. So then we had the task of seeing who could fit, you know, in what roles. And, and you know, Elizabeth Grayson was a natural to play Jennifer, our character. And, and Jim Burns was a magnificent Teddy Roosevelt. I don't think we could have gotten any actor to do a better job on Roosevelt. But then when it came to Peter and, and Adrian, you know, we were in a bit of a conundrum because Eric, Eric really needed a certain kind of English accent and attitude. And I thought, we all thought that Peter's voice had the resonance and tone for that kind of, you know, upper English, upper class English character. And, and Adrian always had more of a working man's accent to our Western ear, our, you know, U.S. ears. And, mm -hmm. and our big question was, could he do an Irish accent? And I thought he stepped up pretty well. Yeah, I think he did quite good. And that, yeah, that's, he, that's, he actually said at the time in the recording that when he played Patrick, he was trying, when Patrick was like hitting on Jennifer and really putting on the blarney, so to speak, Adrian attempted to a more southern, you know, Irish accent, you know, more playful and, and over the top. But then when he was meeting with his brother and the uh, Sinn Féin members, he switched to a flatter um, Ulster dialect. At least that's that was his goal. I, it sounded good to me. I'm, I'm not really, you know, my ear isn't attuned to the, the real nuances, but that was his intent. Well, you know, he was, um, was at least as good, if not better than mine. And uh, I do I do a bad Irish accent, but that said. Um, <laughs> I do a very bad Irish accent. I, I should be able to do a better Irish accent because a lot of my aunts and uncles are from Dublin, so... <laughs> Yeah, you, yeah, you should. I'm, I, I'm many generations removed from old air. I'm afraid. But you know, I, I was, I was quite, I was quite um, surprised to, to hear him do that accent because he never really did a Scottish accent in the Highlander series. It was kind of like, um, he, he, he kind, I think he started out doing it, but he kind of, um, after a time, you, you know, he just stopped doing it, or, or my ears maybe adjusted and got used to it. Um, yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, Adrian was interesting because he was really, really heavily prepared when he came in for the read. He took this very seriously, to to his credit and our delight. I mean, he he suggested trying the different inflections of Irish accent. He had a lot of thoughts and comments on on Patrick's character, and and then he did when he did the ad lib session. 
he was just great, you know. He was like singing Irish songs while blasting away at Martians, you know. And that, there's a great <laughs> one of my favorite shots in the film is when he's in the tailed ball turret gun of the uh, Goliath battle tripod, and he's blasting away at a Martian wing, you know, flying through the canyons of New York City with the with his uh, twin fifty caliber ball turret gun, and and he does this, hey, come on, my beauties, are you know? And he's, you know, it's like. That was all off of his ad lib. He created that scene around his ad lib. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, you mentioned the uh, Sinn Fein bit with uh, Adrian, Adrian's character. I can't remember his the character's name off the top of my head. But um, the the whole uh, dilemma of him sort of like trying to get a hold of these reverse engineered weapons and you know sort of like giving them to the IRA and then having to make the decision of conscience to do the right thing. I really enjoy. I really enjoyed the aspect of the uh, of the film. I mean, it was a, it was quite a pacey film. It was kind of like it put me in mind of, of of the original Star Wars film in terms of the actual pacing, but you know also in terms of the substance of the characters. As in, you know, pretty much every character in in the film was serviced and had had a pretty you know had some sort of backstory or dilemma that that was going on, and that's something well, I really. Thank enjoyed. you. That's high praise. You know, I I, I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 something I really enjoyed, and I just felt you know the you know you you could you could probably get another film out of this. I think. Oh yeah, you have no idea. You know, we we have so much backstory, and that that was one of the criticisms from some critics that they felt stories like the IRA Sinn Fein story were were left a bit hanging, you know, and and not developed fully. But you know, when you have an ensemble cast of characters, really, you know, if you count Teddy Roosevelt and Rip Toffin, you know. And our crew of five main characters, you know, then we have really seven characters to service in in the film, and and ultimately that means some stories get underdeveloped than others, and and we have extensive backstories on everyone. I mean, Jennifer's backstory is very developed. You know, her father was like a Carnegie or a you know a Standard Oil magnet or a rail railroad magnet, right? And her story with him, you know, was only hinted at, you know, and the same with Abe and his family, you know, they came down from Canada, his parents, his grandparents originally were escapees from slavery, and they came up to Canada on the Underground Railroad, you know, so now he's back in the States with, you know, a whole, which is a whole mixed bag for someone with his background, you know, Uh, and the same goes certainly for Patrick O'Brien and the Sinn Féin, I I I have big big plans for them if we get to do a sequel. I I plotted out a sequel a, about a year ago, um, cool. you know, just on my story notes, and you know I would say that it would be no big revelation that that the, the second invasion by Mars creates you know such confusion that there's a instead of a 1916 rebellion in Ireland, there's a 1914 rebellion. There's a, an uprising in 1914, and it succeeds, at least for the time being, in driving the English out of Ireland. So what's going to happen when Ares is, you know, goes to England in the sequel and, and they get marching orders to, to put down that rebellion, right? What's going to happen with Patrick and, and this confrontation with his brother? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that sounds like quite, quite you know, that, that could be quite a high, high, high high drama moment it would be and to be honest i don't know how that would end up not well i i don't think you know would patrick refuse just flat out refuse to fight his brother would he suck it up would he be there when his brother is killed you know i i actually that's the kind of thing i would hand over to someone like david abramowitz and say man just go for it you know mm-hmm. and he would yeah. i hope we get to do that sequel if people if enough people buy our dvds and and blu-rays and and vod's then 
we will make a sequel. It, it all kind of depends on how the film is received, certainly. Well, I, I'm kind of hoping you do send a lot of DVDs and stuff like that, because I, I'd be game for a sequel, but I was just, I've just had a thought. Have you ever thought of maybe sort of like, uh, trying to use Kickstarter or something to, you know... To raise funds for projects because that's something that's been been happening a lot of me. You've seen a lot of uh, a lot of pretty big scale projects happen, you know, thanks to uh, crowd crowdfunding things such as Kickstarter. Yeah, I, I think if we can if we can generate enough of an audience base off of this first film, um, a Kickstarter campaign of some form would be in the offing. I I've considered uh, I've, I've been putting together the logistics of of raising a Kickstarter to do an Art of War, the world's book, you know. I, I'd like to do a 140-page, uh, 12 by 14 dimension art book, which oh. would, you know, have feature a lot of our really gorgeous designs and, and concept pieces. And, you know, if we could raise money for that and if we went over, then uh, maybe I'd use the second chunk of money to actually write a, a to generate a novelization a sequel to the to the movie you know and if we raised a lot of money then then perhaps a sequel could be something we could we could jump start mm. you know i it's it's hard to say just how deep our audience base goes you know i think we'll know more by the end of april after our first month of, of us dvd release uh, but kickstarter is something that Next month, I will be. Maybe I'll put the options of what to do with the Kickstarter campaign out onto the, the Facebook page for the film and see what the fans want. You know, would they want a novelization? Would they want a, a hundred-page graphic novel sequel? You know, we could do that. We could do the art of book. All of them do properly. So, you know, USD. So it, it kind of maybe maybe that's something we can open up to the fans and let them decide. Yeah, you could also maybe uh, develop a video game. That's something we've considered. Uh, you know, the, our, our problem is that Tripod is a small company. It's really a three-man company, and then our, you know, whatever support staff we can pull in at the time. And we pretty much ran through our entire budget and more to get this film made. I have not drawn a salary from Tripod for the last three years or, or more. So I'm, I'm, I'm out working day jobs in animation just to keep a roof over my head, and it's hard for me to spend the time doing proper license and merchandising. At the same time, my partners in KL have their own priorities and their own agendas. So we've done some license and merchandising. I, I brought in a few things. We have a, a, a young writer who's quite good, Adam Whitlich, doing a novelization of the movie even as we speak. Cool. And I've, I've been taking the time to work with him and give him expanded notes on, on everything. So he has the film, he has the original script. He's got all of my backstory bios and, and a large history of the world that I wrote kind of detailing the, the years between the invasion of 19, 1899 and, and 1914. So he has all of that. And then as he rolls through the chapters, I'm trying to give him updated notes and expansions to enhance each chapter. So I think in the end, he'll have, we'll have a, uh, probably a 300-page novelization of the movie that goes way beyond the film in terms of backstory and depth. Cool. Um, I, I, I'd probably go for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hope so. It'll be initially published online, and then we'll take it out and see if we can get a major you know, hard copy publisher to, to pick it up. And we have about 130 pages of War of the Worlds comic book stories. None of them are an exact adaptation of the film, but they're all stories set in the during the period of the movie. So... You know, we have, uh, they were drawn by about a dozen top artists out of Malaysia who are as good as any American graphic novel artists. And uh, 
David and I and Leon and, and the others uh, wrote stories and, and uh, I edited the package. And it's a good collection. Uh, they ran in Heavy Metal Magazine and we're in negotiations now with a, a major U.S. publisher to collect all of that into a hardback. Wow. Uh, Wouldn't happen to be Dynamite, would it? No, it's not. <laughs> uh, the reason I said that because I, I read a lot of Dynamite comics because they do a lot of the uh, proper pulp, you know, action heroes of, of years gone by. They do Doc Savage now. Oh really? Like so I read a lot. I read a lot of Dynamite comics. That's like uh, perhaps one of my favorite U.S. publishers of comics. Um, I barely read any DC or Marvel um, because I, I I just find those characters not quite as good as the um, old nineteen thirties pulpy characters like that you had, such as you know Doc Savage and and and, sure. and the likes, you know, and things like that. Um, yeah, you know, Dynamite is not the publisher we're negotiating with, but if it falls through with them, they could be someone we could approach because we have all the work done. You know, it's all run in heavy metal. It's all all the artwork is done, the writing's done. It just needs to be collected and bound and and uh, and put out there. Oh well, you know, so. be sure be sure and let me know uh, when 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 the, the when the, when the comics become available. I mean, I'll obviously try and keep an eye on the Facebook page and everything. So. To keep keep up, but you know, be sure and let me know. Send a press release or something, and we can run it on the uh, website. Thank you, Ian. We will. We we will announce that to the in a, in our release. All, all of the small license and merchandising we're doing on the film will 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 keep you in the loop on. I'd like to do more. I'd like I'd love to do a video game of some kind. Uh, we have a, a games company in Malaysia that approached us and put an offer on the table, but I I haven't heard anything from Leon in a month or two about the progress on that, so I don't know if it's moved ahead or not. Do you know um, what would be a really cheap option, cheaper than a video game maybe, and maybe easier for you guys to produce? A tabletop, no. a tabletop RPG game. I've thought about that too. I, I, I think it's an ideal RPG game. I just have not um, had the time working to keep my, my own family supported on other jobs. I just haven't had the time to, uh, to spend hunting them down, you know, but it would be a great RPG game. I know... There's somebody on our Facebook page linked us to uh, an RPG game that's very similar to War of the Worlds Goliath. It was uh, called The Martian Front. Yeah, I've heard of that one. And it's set in a 1914 or 1915 a World War One milieu with uh, you know World War One soldiers fighting the tripods and. And uh, I was quite impressed by the quality of what they did because essentially they took the same tack that we took in War of the Worlds Goliath, you know. Uh, what would the world be like in a World War One period if instead of fighting each other, mankind was fighting the Martians, you know. I, I don't think they borrowed our the concept from us. I think it's just a kind of a concept whose time has come. I mean, there was a Dark Horse comic that dealt with the same thing, which, which I, I thought was really well done, you know? And some people have said, well, you ripped them off. And it's like, no, we came up, I came up with my version of War of the Worlds, a sequel. I, I developed that in, the, in 1997, you know? Wow. Yeah. So I think some ideas just are, are natural ideas, you know? I mean, she Wells' story, the way it ends, it, it generates that kind of speculation. Well, it's like I once came up with an idea for um, for a Star Trek story back when they, you know, they were inviting uh, people to pitch story ideas, and I came up with this idea of using some characters that they had uh, from a previous uh, episode um, in Star Trek Voyager. And as it happens, a year or two after I'd thought of this idea, not even bothered to write it down or script it or anything, but a year or two after I'd thought of this idea, there was a Star Trek Voyager episode utilising these characters that I thought it'd be an idea to bring back. So yeah, it does there, happen. There you go. I, I've seen that happen a lot. You know, it, it, it does happen. 
Um, well, um, well, maybe telepaths were out there scanning for ideas and they just picked your brain, Ian. That, that's always a possibility. Whoopi Goldberg ripped you off. Yeah, I'm kind of good at, I'm kind of good at because if, if that is the case, there's no way I can actually prove it and get litigious about it. <laughs> yeah, well, I actually was ripped off by Star Trek The Next Generation on a, on a concept. I, I was pitching story ideas with a, my writing partner at the time, Kevin Altieri, and we went in and met with Michael Pilar from... Star Trek The Next Generation, and we had three very developed ideas, and they were good ideas, and uh, we got very short shrift from Michael. Um, I, uh, I won't personalize it beyond that, but one of the concepts we pitched to him was, you know, for, it always disturbed me that in a, in a universe, you know, we come from a world where, you know, a, a human and a monkey are, are pretty close genetically, right? But we can't interbreed, but we all evolve from the same gene pool, you know, or a cat and a dog, right? They don't, they can't interbreed, but they all evolve in the same gene pool and environment on Earth. Well, how can a human and a Vulcan, you know, mate and have, have half-breed children, right? Or a human and a Romulan, you know, it, it never made any scientific sense. So we wrote a story where the Enterprise actually discovers like one of the original progenitor race that seeded the entire galaxy. And they, you know, were a great star-faring civilization that self-destructed. And this guy was found floating in a, like a force field, you know, he'd been drifting for like a half a million years through space, you know, and ultimately they found out that he, his gene type was the original race that seeded all of the planets, including, you know, Vulcan and Earth. They had a civil war and all the planets lost touch with each other, right? And mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a great episode. People would have been crying at the end. Well, they, they passed on it, but a year later, they came up with what I thought was kind of a lame variation of that concept where there was some kind of germplasm discovered that was the originator of, of all of the different uh, you know, humanoid races, right? I think I remember that one because I think they actually, yeah. I think they actually bought back the uh, character of Vash for that episode as well. Yeah, they may have. I mean, I, I felt pretty bitter about it because they obviously you know, took our idea, which had a human face on it, right? Or, or, or a, a, well, as human as like an eight-foot-tall, blue-skinned humanoid alien would have been right it, it, it was a very com compelling episode dealing with mortality and age and they then they turned that character into a germplasm you know mm -hmm. but that wasn't telepathy that was a Hollywood ripoff but that's how it goes sometimes yeah. well, the, the one thing that, the one thing I'm, I'm, I'm sorry just um, I've not just had this thought but it's actually a thought that's been sorry we've been seeing War of the Worlds and I've been watching a lot of documentaries of late about it but this year as as you well know, happens to be the hundredth anniversary of the uh, of of the first world war, and um, I'm I'm just wondering, did you actually hold back the release of War of the Worlds Goliath so you could release it on the hundredth anniversary? I'd like to say we did, but uh, truthfully, um, uh, truthfully, we didn't. We ideally, we would have liked to have had this film out in say you know October of 2011, you know, or, or earlier, but. Uh, various issues in producing the film on a low budget, and then getting a, and then deciding to go from a seventy-minute direct-to-video movie to a an eighty-five-minute theatrical stereoscopic three D movie. You know that all added extra production time. So we actually um, uh, then we spent two years trying to find the right distributor. So this is about as soon as we could get it out, and it's just serendipity that it coincided with the anniversary of the Great War. 
Do you, do you think that'll help in any way for marketing the film? You know, given given the year it's set in and uh, it being hundred years since. You know, we didn't plan it that way, but if it if it does, it would be fantastic. You know, I, I know a National Public Radio here just ran a a whole week long series uh, a week ago on what the world would have been like if the Great War had never occurred. Uh, someone just wrote a novel. Uh, about that, and uh, it's it's really sad. You know, the Great War was probably the most useless war in history in terms of you know there were no monsters to be slain. There was no Nazi or imperialist J- Japan to battle. It was all a bunch of bully boy great powers, you know, pushing out their chests and then sending their young men off to die for nothing. And yeah, it was all the and, and it set the stage for World War Two. Right, which set the stage for the Cold War, and you know the Russian Revolution never would have occurred if it hadn't been for World War One. So you know, so much pain and suffering came out of that conflict. You you do wonder what the world would have been like if it hadn't occurred. Yeah, it's you know? basically it's basically the royal cousins fighting at the end of the day, and that's one yeah. of the things that's yeah, too like, much inbreeding, my yeah. friends. You know. <laughs> Too much um, royal inbreeding that it, it breeds idiots. Mm-hmm. It is also the downfall of the um, of the Austrian royal family as well. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, every, you know, uh, the the world would have been a very different place. It would have been less technologically advanced, probably, you know, because the only beneficial side benefit of war that I could see is that it it does push technology ahead. Mm-hmm. So you know it. it well, we'll see what happens with War of the Worlds, right? The Goliath. I, I think our our sequel is going to show big jumps, even from the technology of the first movie. You know, Tesla, in particular, I think would be working on. You know, he was known for how in, in real life, the real life Tesla was working on energy or beam based weaponry. Cool. You know, so I'm thinking that he might be putting together something that could actually crack open one of those big old Martian wings. Mm-hmm. You know, something beyond like the heat ray. That, that Ares is currently using. You know? Do you think you'll um, you'll likely uh, squeeze in Thomas Edison into the next film as well? Because he was around around about that time as well, wasn't he? Yes, he was. And and you know one of the classic sequels to War of the Worlds was Edison's Conquest of Mars, right? Which was written maybe ten or fifteen years after the original novel and postulates humans were going to Mars to take the war to them, with Thomas Edison leading the way. So it would be entirely appropriate, certainly, to put him into a sequel. Mm. See, I, I was never a history major, but I've always kind of had a bit of an, an interest in, in, in history. Um, you know, back when I was at school, it was kind of one of my favourite favorite topics, but I never really pursued it fully, um, other than reading books. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 love all, I love history and I love alternate history. I, you know, as a lifelong science fiction reader, I found, I think my first alternate history novel that I read was uh, Lord Calvin of Otherware by H. Beam Piper, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I I really like it when writers and authors take historical uh, milieus and then twist them. The Harry Harry Turtledove has made quite a good career doing that. You know mm-hmm. his series about Earth during World War II being godsmacked by an alien and a massive alien invasion, and then how that changes the world over the next thirty years. It's called uh, World in Balance. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing series of books, and and I would you know be less than honest to say that it didn't influence me in in, in crafting this movie and, and in crafting sequels. You know, it's quite a good read. How long has um, World of Worlds Goliath actually been received on its cinema release? And because I know that you had a limited release of it at the cinema in Malaysia initially, and you you've had one a couple of months back in in the states. Um, how, how well did that that go down? 
Well, the cinematic release of War of the Worlds in the States was, was primarily designed as, a, as an advertising tool by our distributor, uh, Sridhar at Barking Cow Media Group. And his, his plan was, look, uh, we have a very limited distribution budget. I mean, our, our entire production budget is, is like a fifth or sixth of what a normal film's P&A budget is, right? So our P&A budget, our prints and ads budget is very small. So he decided the best way to maximize that was to do a, a, a very limited, well, you know, a moderate 18-city theatrical release. So the movie screened in 18 theaters across the U.S., but most of the screenings were matinee screenings. And they were not done to generate revenue from the screenings themselves, but to get our 30-second trailer out at all of those theater screens and all their adjacent theater screens. So he estimated that our 30-second trailer was viewed by maybe 40 million people in the week of, of, of release. And those 40 million people are, you know, they see the DVD at the Walmart or Target or Best Buy store, you know, many of them may go, oh, I saw that trailer at the theater. That looked pretty good. Let me buy this or let me order it from Amazon. So really our theatrical was designed primarily to, to generate uh, really a big ad campaign for the DVD release which, and Blu-ray release, which is coming out in four days in the U.S. Yeah, and well, you know, I'm so like... Um... I'm I'm gonna bung you up an order it on um, on on Blu-ray if I can because I've got multi-regional compatible equipment here in the UK so I can play pretty much uh, any region DVD or Blu-ray. So. Oh, excellent! We got we just got a a, a review from a, a major Blu-ray site that gave us a really really good review both of the film itself and the content of the Blu-ray edition. I'm gonna try and get hold of a copy of the Blu-ray because now that I've seen the film because I've seen the film on your on your private Vimeo thing. I, w I want to see the extras. I want to see all the uh, documentaries and all the interviews and you know all the artwork and and basically see 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 the, you know see you guys talking about the process of making the film. Yeah, there's a lot there. I, I think you'll be you'll be pleased. We even have a couple of the uh, graphic novel stories we did in heavy metal. We, you know, we picked two of those stories. The which well, I, Leon picked them, I believe, uh, and he picked the two that I I wrote and edited myself. And and they're they're really nice stories. Um, I think they'll add a lot of backstory to like the Kushneroff character, mm -hmm. you know, and and his encounter with the Martians in the original invasion outside of Saint Petersburg. It's a a pretty grim story. In fact. That was going to open our film, and I had to cut that scene early on because I realized we just didn't have the budget that could sustain all the many battles we currently had and and a thousand-horse Cossack charge, you know. Thanks for being a part of the show, and the, you know, the very best of luck with War of the Worlds, Goliath. I'm, ho I'm hoping it... I'm hoping it does everything that 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 you're hoping it will. You know that would be amazing. That would be really, really amazing. All right, Ian. Thanks and take care. You too. Thanks a lot. Bye. Who will fight with me?
can do is make sure it is your enemy that dies. science fiction drama envisioned stories that were happening where no one had gone before, discovering and exploring other worlds far, far away. While many of these series and films became cult classics, somewhere along the way, this genre got lost. Imagine if there was a place where you could go watch exciting new space opera series made specifically for the niche audience that you are. Imagine if this place was conducted by a team as passionate as you about science fiction, and who would use all their background experience to make sure you get the best entertainment possible. SOS is a not-for-profit independent production facility that brings together writers, special effects wizards, and other creative talent from around the world who've worked on some of the most recognizable and respected science fiction franchises. So throw away your remote control and get real control by joining the Space Opera Society right now. With as little as $1, you can change the future of entertainment today. For more information, please visit our website. Which is, of course, spaceoperasociety.com. Where all your questions will be answered in our frequently asked questions page. And don't miss our short video presentation from some of our space opera series in development. I'm going to step off the limit. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hi, my name is Steve Lund, and I play the character of Nick Sorrentino on the new sci-fi and space series, Bitten. You are listening to Sci-Fi PulseRadio.com, taking the pulse of sci-fi. And that about wraps it up for uh, this week's show. Uh, next week's show, we have a really interesting uh, couple of guests on. We have Michael and Sarah Feeney, um, who are both kind of spiritualist and, um, you know, what you might call conspiracy theorist. Um, the show the show next week, it's, uh, it's a little bit different. Uh, we're going to be talking about science fiction movies that have sort of like a conspiracy theme to them that can somehow be, you know, run parallel to um, to, to actual conspiracy theories. So it's going to be it's, it's going to be a, um, a bit more of an interesting show than usual. And uh, we'll be running that next week. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. We've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks. Um, don't really want to mention any names right now because I don't really want to jinx these jinx these things that are, that are actually happening. So thanks for listening, and as always, remember you can so like visit us at www.scifipulseradio.com uh, where you can get all our past shows. Uh, you can also visit the uh, main website at www.scifipulse.net. And if you want, if you fancy a bit of science fiction merchandise, uh, you can head on over to www.scifipulsemerch.com uh, where you can you know, check out our catalogue. We've got over 70 odd items. Actually, I think we've got 150 now. Um, ranging from cosplay outfits um, of Stormtroopers and Star Wars stuff to steampunk. 
uh, to bobbleheads to action figures you know you name it we we've, we 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 can actually um, we can actually get hold of it and send it to you that's at www.scifipulsemerch.com um, so thanks for listening and we'll be back at you next time bye for now Offer the world order.